0: From the Orion Policy Institute, this is Orion Talks. Our podcast brings together experts for a conversation about events shaping the world at the local, national, and global levels. Tune in as we discuss foreign policy, security, human rights, political and economic development, and various other issues. Hello everyone, welcome to Orion Talks. I'm your host, Suad Jubukju. Sudan has been experiencing another episode of armed conflict since April 15, 2023. Two army generals, Army Chief Abdel Fattah El Burhan and the leader of the paramilitary rapid support forces, Muhammad Hamdan Dagalu, have been fighting for power. So far, the civilian death toll has reached 500 and about 5,000 people have been injured. Sudan is now at the brink of a civil war. Today we will discuss the ongoing armed conflict in Sudan from an international law perspective with our special guest, Dr. Kiara Redelli. Welcome, Kiara.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Um, You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Um, Dr. Tiara Redelli is a research fellow at the Geneva Academy, where she works for the rule of law in armed conflicts. Uh, in short, it's RULAC, and the Disruptive Military Technologies Project. She has her postdoc at Harvard Law School in 2019 for a project on peace and aggression in international law. She also formerly worked with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Bangladesh in China, Her areas of expertise include international humanitarian law and human rights law and use at Bellum, in other terms, right to war and laws governing how states may resort to war. Chiara, at the Rule of Law in Armed Conflict Project uh, at Geneva Academy, uh, you investigate and classify situations of armed conflicts, provide information on the parties to these conflicts, and how do they applicable to international law? So, when you look at the the recent armed conflict in Sudan, how do you define the key actors in the crisis, and how do you explain the context of the conflict from an international law perspective?
1: This is a very fascinating question, and also with a very complicated answer, so I will do my best to to keep it very mm-hmm. easy. There are a myriads of armed non detectors of rebel groups that operate in Sudan. Most recently on the 15th of April, um, 2013, 2023, we have seen um, new clashes between the government and as you mentioned, the rapid support forces, the RSF, um which is a paramilitary group. On the one hand, we have the government uh, which is currently, and, and the army, which is currently led by the, the army chief, General Al-Buran. And then on the other hand, we have the rapid support forces that are led by General Hamdan. The thing is that the rapid support forces didn't emerge a couple of days ago. They have been operating in the country for nearly two decades. So they started mm-hmm. operating at the big, about 20 years ago. So in the early two thousand, in 2003, um, It's when the conflict in Darfur started, and then I will say a few words about this conflict. But basically, what happened is that during this conflict, so at the beginning of this conflict, the RSF was created as a paramilitary group in order to support uh, Al-Bashir, so to support the government in the war, in the armed conflict that was taking place in uh, Darfur. So this is how they started to, the the, the armed group, the RSF, started to operate. Then what happened is that in 2013, the RSF was kind of incorporated into the National Guards, and it became used more as border guards by the government. So they were still supporting the government. And then in 2019, as it's well known, there was a coup d'etat against al-Bashir, conducted by, among others, General Hamadan, who is um, indeed the the general who is leading now the RSF. Mm -hmm. So the RSF went from supporting al-Bashir in Darfur to contributing to the coup d'etat that overthrew al-Bashir in 2019. Since then, there was the establishment of a transitional government that should have led uh, Sudan to a democratic process and to democratic and free and fair elections. However, what happened is that in 2021, there was a new coup d'etat against the transitional government um, in order to stop basically the democratic process that was taking place at the time. And the thing is that both General Amdan but also General Al-Buran um, took part to the coup d'etat in 2021. And so since then, they shared power in Sudan until clashes started um, some a couple of weeks ago. So this is a bit to give context as to who are the main actors, where do they come from? However, more specifically in terms as to whether this amounts uh, to an armed conflict or not, I should probably explain first what is an armed conflict under international law and why uh, it matters. Now, in order to have a non-international armed conflict, so um, what normally people call as an internal conflict or a civil war, in order to have a non-international armed conflict under international law, we need two elements. The first element is the intensity of violence, And the second element is the organization of the parties. Now, when it comes to the intensity of violence, what we do, which is the methodology which is used by RULAC as well, and by international law in general, um, is that we look at the number of confrontations, the number of people who are affected by the conflict, the number of people who flee the conflict, the kind of weapons that are used. So it's a classification, it's an assessment based on the criteria, objective criteria, of, based on what's happening on the ground. And then on the other hand, we have the intensity of violence. The sorry, the organization of the parties. And with regard to the organization of the parties, we see that when it comes to the government, the organization is presumed because, well, it's assumed that the, the army of a government will have a hierarchical structure. Well, when it comes to the rebel group, so to the non-state actor, in order to have um, to to meet the organization requ- the organization requirement, the non-state actor should have a kind of a hierarchical structure that resembles a bit. Doesn't have to be the same, but it should resemble a bit a hierarchical structure of a normal army. It should also show that for instance it has military capabilities, it has operational capabilities, it has the capacity to speak with one voice. Um, This is also a way to say to say that indeed the group is organized. And the reason why we need the organization of the group uh, as one of the two criteria to determine the existence of a non-international armed conflict is the fact that when you have an IAC, a non-international armed conflict, just like when you have an international armed conflict, what happens is that as soon as the situation amounts to an armed conflict under international law, IHL, so international humanitarian law, it's going to be applicable. So in peacetime, you have human rights law that is applicable. Mm -hmm. On top of human rights law during an armed conflict, you also have IHL, you have international humanitarian law which abides to completely different um, rules, uh, sometimes in contrast with human rights law, other times actually they reach the same conclusion. Um, But just to say that then the dynamic changes because the legal framework becomes completely different. And this has an impact also in terms of, for instance, foreign interventions, uh, um, provision of humanitarian assistance, assistance, There are a series of actions that might amount to war crimes if committed during an armed conflict, while they're not going to be war crimes if they're committed in time of peace, simply because war crimes can only be committed during armed conflicts. So this is why it's important to provide a legal classification, and this is why with with RULAC we are always very cautious before Actually classifying a situation of violence as an armed conflict. However, in light of the criteria that I just mentioned, so the intensity of violence and the organization of the RSF, it seems possible to conclude that the fighting that is happening right now in the capital and in other parts of the country actually amounts to a non-international armed conflict and therefore IHL is applicable.
0: OK, thank you so much. It's very informative and kind of holistic explanation of what's going on. And uh, I have a kind of follow up question because you mentioned now uh, um, Rulak and you as actually see this conflict as a um, non-international armed conflict. So and you mentioned about it really kind of changes the dynamics in terms of humanitarian uh, actions and the uh, the roles of external factors and the, the actors in the region. So who are these external actors can play a role here um and what role do they can do they play
1: mm-hmm. so right now, the main actor um which has been identified as an actor mm-hmm. that is not necessarily taking part to the hostilities uh this is still unclear, but the least is present on the ground is Wagner group uh which is um well a group that is Um, unfortunately, uh, well-known also in relation to to the conflict in Ukraine, but not only, they they operate in in Mali and in other African countries. Um, Wagner Group is a Russian group. It is unclear, um, there are contrasting information, as to whether it's possible to consider Wagner Group as an organ, de facto organ, of Russia or not. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. unclear the degree of independence of Wagner Group, but to uh, be cautious and to say, to, to claim, okay, we don't have enough information, so let's imagine that Wagner Group is not actually an organ of Russia, but it's a more or less independent actor. What happens in this case is that Wagner Group is operating in the country. Should Wagner take part in hostilities, it will become a group party to the conflict. And so IHL will be be applicable to Wagner Group. However, as long as Wagner Group is not taking part in hostilities, then in this case, um, IHL will not be applicable to it. However, it is known that Wagner Group is currently supporting RSF against the Sudanese government. Um, So we shouldn't completely rule out that at some point they could actually join in the hostilities, the hostilities, however, right now, information is still a bit unclear and not sufficiently certain to conclude um in one way or another. But it's still an open question. Now
0: if you like if you find a kind of a credible evidence that Wagner is involved in supporting RSF, um does it make the conflict an international armed conflict in terms of your definitions?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, this is a very interesting uh, question as well. Now, an international armed conflict is an armed conflict that takes place between two states. So okay. in order to decide whether a conflict is international or non-international, you only look at the nature of the parties. If both parties are states, it's an international armed conflict. If at least one of the two parties is a non-state actor, then in this case, it's a non-international armed conflict. Now, Mm -hmm. if we consider Wagner as an organ of Russia, and we manage to establish that Russia is exercising a sufficient degree of control over Wagner in order to attribute the actions of Wagner to Russia and considering that Wagner right now is helping the, the rebel group. So those who are fighting the, the RSF, those who are fighting against the government.
0: Mm-hmm. And then in this
1: case, in, in this case, we could conclude that potentially there will be an international armed conflict between Russia through Wagner on the one hand and Sudan on the other hand. However, as long as we consider Wagner as an independent group, the moment when Wagner joins um, the army, the sorry, the fighting, we are going to have two parallel non-international armed conflicts. One conflict between RSF and Sudan, and the other conflict between Wagner and Sudan, provided that the intensity of violence between Wagner uh, group and Sudan reaches the threshold that I, I mentioned before. Now it's different when the intervention is in favor of the government. So if we had, because in this case, we are talking about Wagner, which is supporting the rebels. But if we imagine that other states might decide to intervene in support of the Sudanese government, then Mm -hmm. in this case, the conflict will remain non-international because it will be between a number of states against the rebels. The only exception is if the intervention takes place without the consent of the government. So one example, which is not related to Sudan, but for instance, when the United States um, led coalition intervened in 2015-14 in in Syria, in order to fight against the Islamic State, Mm -hmm. the intervention took place without the consent of Syria. And so in this case, on top of having a non-international armed conflict between the US-led coalition and the Islamic State, you also have an international armed conflict between the US-led coalition and Syria, because Syria didn't want the US-led coalition to actually bomb its own territory. So that will be the only exception. However, if a state intervenes upon invitation of the Sudanese government, this wouldn't make the conflict international.
0: Okay, and also you know now we see Egypt now supporting Sudanese government, um but it's, it's in favor of the recent government, so it's not gonna make it international counting yeah, okay. and so you know we see kind of the uh, it's taken so much attention from the regional governments like um the Egypt for example, in Saudi Arabia um so what does their intervention imply under the international law and also Wagner group?
1: Sorry, can you repeat?
0: Uh, So what does their intervention, I mean, these external actors
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, imply under international law?
1: So an intervention in principle, when it happens in favor of the government, upon invitation of the government is lawful. So the provision of weapons, uh, sending troops, Here we are talking about non-international armed conflicts. Because if we talk about providing weapons to Ukraine, which is fighting against Russia, or to Russia fighting against Ukraine, this is another story. But when it comes to non-international armed conflicts, providing weapons, uh, training, um, funds, um, any kind of supports, or sending troops uh, to help the government fighting against the rebels, per se is lawful, um, however, this is true as long as the intervention stays within the limits of the invitation. Um, so for instance, one example is when Rwanda intervened in, uh, and Uganda intervened in DRC um, mm. a few decades ago, and uh, and they kind of overstayed their, their welcome because at some point DRC asked them to leave and they didn't. This is when it becomes unlawful. So, but as long as there is the consent, as long as there is the invitation of the government, an intervention is lawful. However, when the intervention happens in favor of the rebels, this is always going to be unlawful. And the rebels are not allowed to invite a foreign country to intervene in a civil war to fight against the government. This is, for instance, what was decided by the International Court of Justice in the case of Nicaragua against the United States, when the U.S. in uh, in the 1980s was supporting Mm -hmm. the rebels fighting against the government in Nicaragua. And then Nicaragua actually brought the U.S. before uh, the International Court of Justice to actually assess the responsibility of the U.S. for violating international law in supporting the rebels, and the ICJ agreed with with Nicaragua. It was a bit different, for instance, in Syria when the rebels were considered as a legitimate representative of people, and so they were helped by some um, Western or NATO countries, Mm -hmm. Uh, but this is not the case here. Um And uh, it, it was a very controversial issue anyway, at the time when it happened in, in Libya and, well, in Libya there was the Security Council, but in Syria, without the Security Council authorization, it was a bit more, more complicated. However, this wouldn't be applicable here, uh, because nobody is actually saying the, that the RSF is the legitimate representative of the Sudanese people. And so helping the rebels in this case uh, would be unlawful, would be a violation of the ban on the use of force and of the principle of non-intervention.
0: Okay, so that's great. So you provide a kind of great comparison with other conflicts. Um, And so Sudan has been experiencing many, many conflicts since its independence uh, in 1956, uh, for example, in Darfur and the conflict between North and South Sudan conflict, uh, which ended with the signing of a peace agreement in 2005. So how is the current conflict in Sudan differs from the previous ones? When you make a kind of comparison, uh,
1: to, to be fair, there are still ongoing conflicts um, mm-hmm. in, in Sudan, this is not the, the most recent one that starting mm-hmm. in, in April is not the, the only one. So, as you said, in Darfur, the, the conflict starting in 2003. However, um, since then, even if there was a fluctuation in terms of fighting, um, under international law, a conflict and, and maybe I, I should mention this before uh, delving into w- which conflicts are happening right now in, in Sudan, under international law, the fact that you have a peace agreement or a ceasefire isn't or the fact that the confrontations diminished. Don't necessarily imply that you, the conflict is over. Maybe we can discuss this a bit more later. But this was a premise that I, I had to make just to explain why, even if indeed in Darfur, there was a bit of ups and downs in terms of fighting and intensity of violence. Um, right now, there are still at least two major groups that are party to the conflict um, against the, the Sudanese government. And um, this is, well, the acronym is a bit complicated, but the name is the Sudan Liberation Movement Army, Abel Wahid, and the Mm -hmm. Sudan uh, Liberation Movement Army, Minni Minawi. So these are two splinter groups that came from from the same group. At some point, there were internal tensions, and they decided to, to separate. And so they created two independent groups they are still engaging in armed confrontations against the government, even if um, there was a peace agreement that was signed on the ter- 31st of August 2020. So even if some groups actually signed a peace agreement with the government, they, sti- they are still fighting, which means that the conflict is not over, Exactly because the, the criteria we mentioned before is intensity of violence and organization of the parties, as long as you have violence, you have an armed mm-hmm. conflict. Now, there was actually another group, uh, which is the justice and equality movement, JEM, uh, and this group, uh, um, was recently declassified in, in our entry in, on the RULAC portal, um, because at least for this group, indeed, it seems that there isn't any fighting anymore, but clearly the situation is always very fluid. So. We keep monitoring um, the, the evolution of the conflict. So this is the situation in Darfur. But then we have also uh, fighting taking place, especially in Kordofan uh, and the Blue Nile states. And now in these um, states, we have a myriad of armed groups. Um to the point that even Rulak struggles to actually assess whether all groups are parties or not, and having access to information is not always easy. Um, however, at least the um, Sudan uh, Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, so the SPLM North, um, at least this group is for sure party to a non-international armed conflict against the government. Now, what happened is that this group have been fighting against the government for years. However, in 2011, they formed a coalition, which was called the Sudan Revolutionary Front. So the groups that I just mentioned that are the major ones in the countries, Mm -hmm. at least until a couple of weeks ago, they formed a coalition to fight against the government. Some of them also contributed to the coup d'etat in 2019 and 2021. Now they're actually asked not to intervene in the conflict right now, not to escalate things uh, further and more than than they are now. But anyway, so following the coup d'etat in 2019, the transitional government of Sudan started to have peace talks uh, with the Sudan Revolutionary Front as an umbrella organization representing the major armed groups operating in the country. However, so using it as a platform for peace negotiations. Mm -hmm. However, what happened is that eventually, as I mentioned before, um, in August 2020, they reached a peace agreement. Um, But the majority of these groups are still fighting and they're actually tempted to uh, join the the fighting right now. So the situation is still very open and it doesn't seem possible to, to declassify or to determine the end of, of any of these conflicts in spite of the peace agreement.
0: Yeah, it seems to be kind of a hot spot of conflicts. Um, and um, so my last question, you know, so far it has been kind of eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Chiara. And it's going to be like beyond the, um, the perspectives of international law. Since you follow the situation very closely for a long time, And I really want to have your um, your insights on, uh, do you expect a peaceful solution to the current crisis and or do you expect it's going to escalate further in the short term or in the long term?
1: Now, I think uh, as a wishful thinking answer, (laughs) I would I would like to say that I do hope uh, that a peaceful solution will will arrive soon. Um, however, considering how, um, other rebel groups are thinking about joining the fighting. On top of it, we have Wagner group, we have, um, foreign actors that might fuel the conflict, um, because obviously providing funds, uh, weapons and, you know, it's going to, to fuel the conflict. And this is what always happens for, um, you know, better or worse. Uh, but anyway, so, I think that it's quite unlikely that this conflict is going to end anytime soon. I hope that I will be proved wrong. So uh, I do hope to be wrong, but unfortunately it might be um, that the, the conflict is here to stay for a while. And and just to to clarify clearly, one, one thing is when you have like a, a lulling hostilities, Uh, which might take place or, you know, sometimes you have ceasefire, for instance, during Ramadan, um, groups and Mm -hmm. government might decide not to fight. As I mentioned before, this is not enough um, to end a conflict. To end a conflict, you need to be sure that fighting is is unlikely to resume anytime soon. Another way in which you can put an end to the conflict is if the armed group disappears, or if the armed group actually wins the war, um, yeah. so in the case of the FARC, for instance, in Colombia, uh, the FARC signed a peace agreement and that is mental, and then as such the conflict was um, was over. Um, however, again, even signing a peace agreement per se, as we saw with the peace agreement that was signed a couple of years ago, is not guarantee that the conflict is um, indeed over. Of course, even when a, a rebel group becomes the new government, this could put an end to the conflict potentially, but as we saw in Libya, it could actually also open the door to more conflicts and more instability. Um, so again, um, not very good prospects uh, for, for peace maybe, but again, I do hope to, to be wrong.
0: Kara, uh, thank you so much for your time and insight. It was a pleasure hosting you. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much.